Uh, turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. We're in the middle of chapter 2. Uh, for those of you that are visiting with us, it, uh, it seems like, it might just be me, but I see a lot of new faces. I don't know, maybe uh, because of Memorial Day weekend, uh, maybe there's a few of you visiting with family. We're so glad that you're here, that you could be a part of uh, uh, worshiping with us this Sunday, and we hope that God ministers to you. Uh, just to catch you up, if you are new, we've been going through First uh, Peter, uh, the whole book, starting at the beginning in a series that we're calling A Change in Allegiance. This book is uh, written to Christians who were scattered all over the area, which is now modern-day Turkey, so Asia Minor, and they, they had no home. And what Peter has been saying over and over is this theme that you, you don't, you actually belong to heaven. If you're born again, you, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. So in one way, you do not belong here. But in a second sense, this, this thing, this concept that's been balancing that, you are sent here by God to be on mission. And so as Christians, 2,000 years later, we find ourselves in the same exact predicament. And Peter's, uh, Peter's words would speak to us with the same type of weight that you are residents of Santa Barbara and Goleta and Isla Vista and Montecito and abroad. And for those of you, wherever you're visiting from, that, that's where you reside. And there is an intentionality to your life there. And yet there's this balance and the sense that you, you don't truly belong there. And we've been saying we are sent and yet set apart. And as the letter has been going, Peter has been speaking about this kind of broadly. And now, in the rest of chapter 2 and for all of chapter 3, he's going to try to, he's, he's going to basically drill that down into tangible relational forms. And the, uh, uh, asking the question, how are we sent and yet set apart? Specifically in the text, with social orders. And I did not plan to be speaking on this verse today, uh, but that is the nature of going through a book verse by verse. You get what you get by the Spirit of God. So, without further ado, let's read verses 13 through 17 as we look at the specifics of what it means to live sent and yet set apart as Christians. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse 13 through 17. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. God, we, we just want to thank you today for your word and what a timely word it is. Thank you that even as we gather here today, just the fact that we open up our Bibles is a reminder that you have spoken to your people and you have led us in the right way. Even as we woke up this morning and it was raining, Lord, we just reminded of the prophet Isaiah that is the 
rain comes down from heaven and doesn't return there but waters the earth. And it brings forth seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So your word that goes out of your mouth shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which you purpose. And so God, we just want to be your willing subjects, your glad worshipers, sent here in the city of Santa Barbara and abroad with unwavering allegiance to our King. And we just want to say with our, our, our Bibles open and our hearts open, Lord, what, what do you want to accomplish in us? What is your purpose? Why are we here? What do you want to do with us? And whatever that answer may be, we say before even knowing, because we know that you are good and worthy. Yes and amen. Send us in the way. Keep our foot from slipping. Guide our paths. Keep us watching for you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So pretty, pretty basic text this morning. Peter just gets to the point, and he says, you know, to answer this question, how are we as believers, we've been speaking on a broad level, you know, that we are sent and yet set apart. We're here, but we do not belong here, and yet we're here with intention, we're here with a mission, but what does that look like? And Peter, as I mentioned earlier, is going to go through a bunch of different uh, social categories and explain how that fleshes itself out. Now, we're looking at a particular social order in the public space. And he's speaking right now. He's going to say a few things, about three things. The Christian's relationship to the government. A few conditions and exceptions to that that he'll get into a little bit later. And then kind of the overarching purpose. That that creates a space for us to be who we are supposed to be. And he'll end with that. He's going to start with our relationship to government authorities, some conditions on that, and then our purpose within that space. And here's, he he doesn't mince any words when he he speaks about our relationship to the government. He comes right out and he says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. To be subject means, in the simplest way put, to respect someone else. To respect someone else, if you wanted to even parse that word apart, if you don't know what that means, it means, simply put, to recognize someone's authority and to abide by that, all right? So when Peter is telling us to respect human institutions, he's telling us, in one way or another, to, uh, in a general sense, to recognize them as having that authority and to abide by it. The Christian must respect governing authorities. Now, if you are confused or asking questions about what those government, governing authorities are, he goes on in verse 13 to say, whether it is to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So, lest we have any doubts, Peter is giving us a wide area to choose from. He's saying, from the very top, you know, we don't have emperors or kings, at least in our country, but our equivalent would be the president, right? So he would say something like this to us, whether it be the president or all of those that the president elects or calls into positions of authority to lead, 
from the federal level to the state level. He's saying whether it's uh, emperors or governors sent by him. So from the top all the way to uh, uh, civic responsibilities. So we might even think of verse 13 as police officers. So this wide area from presidents to governors to police officers, this would be the, the contemporary equivalent. He's saying, you are to be subject for the Lord's sake to all of these human institutions whether it is to the highest of the high or to the ones in your own city, for they are there to punish evil and to reward or at least to praise good. Simply put, Peter is saying, be law-abiding citizens. That's really the end of what he's saying. He's spending a couple verses hashing that out, but if we wanted to simplify it, he's saying, live under the law of the area in which you live, be law-abiding citizens, and honor the offices that have been instituted. The reason that he says it is that this is for the Lord's sake, not for the governor's sake, or the police officer's sake, or the president's sake, not for your sake, not even Uh, primarily for your well-being, but for the sake of the Lord. Why for the Lord's sake? Because he is the one who ends up commissioning those who are in those positions of authority. The government is, in God's design, commissioned by God to punish evildoers and praise doers of good. Paul speaks about this a little more in depth. If you want to, you can turn to Romans, keep your thumb here, Romans chapter 13, where he speaks about the design behind this in the first seven verses. I'm just going to read the first couple verses. But Paul says a similar thing as Peter. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Meaning, any authority in government that exists to begin with has been given by God who has that authority. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Look at verse... uh, I'm just going to keep reading. I always do that, don't I? Let's just read the whole Bible this morning. That'll cover all our bases, why don't I? For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, Romans chapter 13 cannot be read without first reading what came before it in Romans chapter 12, where he's not speaking to government authorities, but he's speaking to the church. Look at what he says in Romans 12 from verse 17 on. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. He's speaking now to the church in the the verses prior. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, you give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So do not be overcome by evil, but be overcome uh, excuse me, e- uh, overcome evil with that which is good. And you see this, this, the opposite ends of the spectrum right now. 
where God is commissioning the government in order to do something that is important to him. Show vengeance and wrath on evil. We would believe, though we sometimes don't say it in the moment, especially when we're the ones that are caught in sin or trespasses or crime or trouble. Truthfully, we want to know that God cares about punishing evil, or at least that he's going to do something about it. We also want to believe and believe in our hearts from what we see in the scriptures that God is a merciful God. And so we're often caught between those two poles, especially when it's us involved. When we sin, when we make mistakes, we want to know that God is merciful and kind. But when someone else does something wrong, we want to know that they're going to, that there's going to be repercussions for that. We look out into the world and we see evil, we see corruption, we see dark things happening, even in our own city, and we want to know that God is going to do something about it. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 through 7, God would proclaim his name to Moses and he would say, I am full of mercy and forgiveness. I am slow to get angry and abounding in loving kindness, but I will not ignore the iniquity of other people. It's almost like two opposite things. God's saying, I love to show mercy, and I love to show justice. How in the world are those two things accomplished? Well, for the believer, they're accomplished in Christ Jesus. Where we see in Romans chapter 3 that Jesus himself, when he died on the cross, was that sacrifice that satisfied the wrath and justice of God. We were in sin. We had committed treason against the kingdom of God. We were guilty And we deserved to be punished. And yet God put that punishment on Jesus Christ. His wrath was satisfied, justice. And yet he was able, because of that, to give us grace and mercy. And then his mercy is satisfied. Both two things are satisfied in every person that comes to Christ. But how does it work out in the public realm? The Bible would tell us there is a government and there is a church. And both are used and instituted by God, the government to punish evil. And the church, the people within the church, their job isn't to punish or to seek vengeance or to enact wrath. It's to show love. So you have Paul. You see this in his back and forth telling the church, hey, I want you for your enemies to love them. I want you to give them water. I want you to give them food. I want you to forgive them, and I want you to pray for them. I want you to seek peace as far as it depends on you. I want you to be uh, uh, expounders of peace. The government, I want you to show vengeance. It's not the government's job to proclaim the gospel. It's not the Christian's job to enact God's wrath. And there you see the commission of God. Why are we to respect and honor them? It is God's design. Hence, our respect for them, verse 15, is the will of God. But here's what perhaps some of you are asking. What happens when those governing authorities overstep their bounds? What happens when it's those authorities instituted by God who are not punishing evil and praising good, but they're uh, punishing good and praising evil? What if they're enacting laws that are causing us as Christians to have to do something wrong, to go against our conscience, to sin? 
What happens when there's corruption and injustice? What happens when you look at people in government positions and you say, that just doesn't seem, it just doesn't sit well with my soul. Peter then gives us conditions to answer that very thing. He says, for example, look at this in verse 17. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. He's essentially giving us ways of relating to different groups of people. He says, for example, I want you to, as we already heard, I want you to honor and respect those who are in authority. Good. Right? Give them the respect that is due. Be law-abiding citizens. Then he says, I want you to love the brotherhood or each other, brothers and sisters in the church. Now, he's not saying we aren't supposed to love anyone else. In, in fact, Jesus would tell us that we're to love even our own enemies. He's not saying we aren't supposed to love everyone. Right now, he's differentiating between the types of love that we're to give one another. In, in, in other words, he's saying the love that you share with your brothers and sisters in Christ should be, it should be emphatic. It should be better than. Love everybody, but especially each other. I love what Paul says in Galatians where he says, do good to everybody, especially those of the household of the faith. Non-believers should look in at the church and see our relationships and see something so bizarrely full of the love of God that they want a piece of it. Jesus said, you'll know that, they'll know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And so we see that pattern from Peter who walked with Jesus over and over. I want you to respect everybody and I want you to show tireless love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But then look at what he says after that. I want you to fear God. Right now what we're looking at is a, a bunch of different ways in which we are submitted to different relationships. When you respect someone, you defer to them. You respect their position. You abide by uh, whatever it is that they have set up. You are in some way submitting in that relationship. When we love one another, it is a form of mutual submission. Is that I care more about your well-being than mine? That is a picture of love. And then he says to fear God. So there is submission happening all over this little batch of relationships, but the submission that is due to God is absolutely unique and unequivocal. We're not just to honor him, we're not just to love him, we're to fear him. And he's not saying to fear him in the way that you would be afraid of someone or scared of God. He's speaking about that deep-seated reverence that you have when you are in the presence of holiness and glory. He's saying, I want you to worship God. Honor these people, love these people, but your worship and your allegiance is due only to one person. See that? Unequivocal, unambiguous, unique. In other words, the government is not God. They're servants of God, or they are designed to be. And whenever the government, this is what Peter's setting us up for, whenever the government or government officials do or say something that is going to force you to disobey God's word, you are supposed to resist. Because they are not your God. In the same way that I am not your God. We are not in that place in our relationship with one another. We are mutually submitted, we love, we honor, but there is only one person we worship. 
And to the degree that we can work within that realm, we give honor when honor is due and love when love is due. We don't stop loving, but when we are being faced with an opportunity to disobey God, we have the opportunity and the call to resist. We see this throughout the scriptures in different places. One of the great examples is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, those four boys are an excellent example of what Peter is trying to teach. What does it look like to be immersed in culture, to respect people in authority, but to be set apart? And if you read that book, you see in Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego an incredible involvement. They weren't monks. They weren't like abstaining from culture. They were in the highest levels of government. They were so good at what they did. They were so blessed by God. They were so skilled in areas of knowledge and wisdom that the highest government leaders wanted them over their own Babylonian boys. They wanted the Hebrews. They were so good at what they did. And so they rose to the ranks. And they were even willing to be acclimated in some way to Babylon. These were Jewish boys, Hebrew boys. And yet as a part of being sent into their city, they were actually willing to accommodate that culture and to be a part of it, to be involved in the deepest levels of that public space. They were involved in the court. They were involved with the king. They were involved in leadership. They, were ev- uh, they ate the king's food, no longer their own. In fact, they even were willing to lose their Hebrew-given names to take on the Babylonian names of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the moment that the kings began to demand that they worship him over God, they said, we just can't do that. They were actually quite cordial about it. They weren't punks, you know? They're like, I'm sorry, king, we, we can't do that. Daniel faced the lion's den. The other three boys faced the fire. We know how that turned out. They were saved and rescued. But I remember, you remember the, the words. We went through Daniel together and the line from those three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were being mocked by the king saying, or excuse me, by, uh, by their enemies saying, will your God rescue you? And their response was, we believe that he has the power to deliver us, O king. But even if he does not, we will not bow down to worship you. They were willing to go to their deaths out of worship for their God. So there are, and there may be times in our lives where Out of respect and out of love, we must decide who we are going to serve. I'm not talking about our personal rights or our personal preferences or there's a law that is making me, uh, uh, that is costing me my convenience. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about laws that directly contradict what God is calling us to. There are opportunities to resist. Peter himself, writing this letter, was in an occasion uh, in, a, in a very similar situation where he kept proclaiming the gospel, kept talking about Jesus. People were getting saved. And the authorities at that time, the Jewish authorities, commanded him to shut up. And they responded, I don't know about you, but we cannot stop talking about this Jesus. 
So do whatever you're going to do to us, but we're not going to stop. They went out. They kept, uh, they kept talking about Jesus. People got res- rescued and delivered and saved. They got pulled back into the synagogue area, flogged for their disobedience, went out praising God for uh, having the, the, the opportunity to suffer shame for Christ. There is a place, it would seem from Peter, even though we have to, we're supposed to have a posture of respect and abiding and love towards others, and in this case towards government authorities, there is a place for what we might call civic disobedience, where we must stand up for things that we believe are right, whether it is our worship of God being challenged, or whether it is some system of injustice that we need to call out prophetically. There seems to be the space for us to do that. Peter would go on in verse 16 to say, after all, government is not our master. We're not even our own master." We have been bought. We have been rescued by a better master. And so he says in verse 16, in that case, live as people who are free. You hear what he's saying? He's saying you're not just free from your sin. You're free from everybody. Now, Peter isn't saying this in a democratic society where people have the right to vote or to have religious freedom. He's saying this under Emperor Nero where they actually have no rights. They're actually, for all intents and purposes, not free. And Peter is saying, live as people who are free because you are. In what way are they free? Freed from bondage to the devil. Freed from having to be owned in their soul by any other human person. But as Jesus would once say, hey, don't fear the person who can damage or hurt your body. Fear the, people, the, the, the God who has uh, authority over your soul. In other words, even though people can hurt your body, even though they can throw you into prison, even though they can do all sorts of things, lawsuits, uh, all, all the list of different ways that people can come against us, they cannot do anything to your soul. That is in the realm of God. Peter is saying you have been freed. Remember the verses that have come before this. You've been rescued from your old feudal way of life and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Live like you have been set free. Well, what if I'm not? Live like a free person. In other words, don't fear the people around you. Don't feel threatened by the culture around you. Don't feel threatened by people in authority. Consider it a space for divine opportunity. We're not slaves to government institutions. We're not slaves to our, uh, to our uh, family habits. We're not slaves to our sin. We're not even slaves to our own passions. Christ is our master. We have been transferred to be servants of the king of kings. The actual word here, when he says in verse 13, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, isn't even a a human institution. The actual word in Greek is be subject to every living creature. And then he goes on to speak about living institutions. But make no mistake, Emperor Nero, who would have been in charge during Peter's day, would have not been blessed by reading this. 
Like, oh, God, Peter is telling everybody to respect me. No, he would have been reading, be subject to every human creature. In that culture, emperors were demigods. They were considered to be from heaven. Caesar was divine and worthy of worship. And right now, Peter is saying, he's just a man. I'll tell you who you should worship. You should worship God and respect all of those in authority as an act of worship to God. Peter is right now putting every human being in their rightful place below the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We see right here a balance between anarchy and tyranny, right? Between just no type of rule or law and absolute government power. And right there in the middle of that space, God creates space for a little bit of order. And he calls the church to fill that space with divine love. And so we are to respect government officials, to honor them, maybe even to pray for them, as Paul would tell Timothy. But we're also to hold them accountable. And there's the balance that it seems like Peter is hitting right now. The government is merely a steward of the power allotted them by God. They are not our saviors. They do good things for the common good, or they're supposed to. They also do bad things that we we see and witness from time to time. But they are not our saviors. They cannot truly do what needs to be done to bring the kingdom of God to bear on earth. Only Jesus can fill the role of a Messiah. And the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6, would even tell us that one day the governments themselves will sit upon the shoulders of the Most High. He will bear them and he will stand in power upon the throne and they will be upon his shoulders. But the first way that he came, that's the second way, the first way that he chooses to come is by dying at the hands of corrupt government officials who nail him to the cross so that he can give his life that they and you and I might be truly free. in the middle of a week where we are remembering people who have died for our freedom. Can't think of a more timely passage to meditate on than the concept of our freedom being purchased by death. There will be a time where he sits on the throne, but the first way that he comes, Merry Christmas, is by dying at the hands of evil and corruption. And rising from the dead again. And that freedom Peter is saying should press us deeper still into our calling and purpose. What is our purpose in all of this? Look at what he says in verse 12. Or actually uh, verse 12 and 15. This is what we read last week. In verse 12 he said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." Our text today in verse 15, he says something similar. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, okay? And when he speaks about people, when, when the Bible says ignorant or f- uh, foolish or futile people, he's not like trying to throw out some cheap shots at people. It's not like a derogatory comment or, a, or an insult. Are you a foolish person? 
he's speaking in spiritual terms that whenever you see foolishness or ignorance, even though it never feels good to hear that being said about yourself, it's not supposed to be like this elbow. You know, to, it's not a derogatory remark. It's, it's just that language that the Bible uses to describe people who have not been born again. And as Paul would say to the Corinthian church, that uh, there are certain things that a person who has not been set free by Christ cannot understand. And so Peter is saying, we are surrounded in this society. We are surrounded in this culture by people who are looking in that do not understand. And I want you to silence the wrong things that they are saying and the wrong things that they are thinking. By what? Well, verse 15, by doing good. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, being gent- uh, uh, having, keeping your conduct among Gentiles honorable. So one way we could do it, out of all that Peter has just got done saying, is by being law-abiding citizens who respect people outside of the church. If we did that, that would be a first great way to start, Right? If we respected everyone that we ran into, regardless of their faith, regardless of their background, regardless of their race, regardless of all of those things that always pop into mind, if we were respectful, honorable people, Peter is saying that's a start. And as it pertains to the government, if we were law-abiding citizens who actually cared about justice and doing the right thing, and we respected people, and we were known for that, that is a good way to start. I think he's saying something like that. But I don't think that's all he's saying. In fact, I don't think that's good enough to accomplish these two things that Peter is saying. I want you, people outside of the church are slandering the cause of God. They're slandering people within the church. I want you to silence it. I don't think it's enough to simply be law-abiding citizens. In other words, to not break any laws. That's the obligation of every citizen. That's what's expected of all people. And Christians as well. I don't think that is enough to, uh, to encapsulate this huge purpose that Peter is calling to us by God. That we, in our, the way that we live, are to silence lies. And to actually, call, look at what he says in verse 12. Your conduct among Gentiles should be so honorable that when people speak against you as evildoers, they'll actually see your good deeds and glorify God on the, on the day of visitation. That somehow our lives are so different that it actually changes people's perception of us. I don't think it's enough to simply be law-abiding, respectful citizens. I think there's more here, and I think Peter tells us what it is. But first, how are some of the ways that we would be slandered in our culture? The foolish talk, the slander. There's a book that came out recently by uh, David Kinnaman president of the Barna Research Group, and George Lyons, the president of, of, of Q, uh, who wrote that, that book that was super popular years ago called Unchristian. They came out with another one called Good Faith, where they essentially diagnose the perception that our neighbors have of us in basically two ways. They say basically people on the outside looking in on the church deem that we are, one, irrelevant, and two, we're extreme. Uh, talk about extreme some other time. This is a lot of stuff. Irrelevant is where I really want to sit down on. That they would look in at us, and even if we're respectful, law-abiding citizens, 
What they're saying is most, uh, many people would look in on the church and our faith, and even though we're law-abiding citizens, would say, you have no relevance to my life. Neither does your faith, and neither does your church community. Some of the reasons that Kinnaman and Lyons listed in their research, I'll just, there were about five things. I'll just list two because it has to do with what we're talking about, is one, faith-driven organizations or churches are irrelevant to a charitable society. That is people's perception. Is that even if we're singing and getting along really well and you know, doing Bible studies that we really do not contribute uh, to the outside world, let's say Santa Barbara. And the second reason is that Christianity is irrelevant. This is what people would say. Irrelevant to the real stuff of life and culture. So we are irrelevant to society and we are irrelevant to people's personal lives and we are irrelevant to, to the culture around us. Essentially, no matter uh, how good we feel about our own faith, what people's perception is, is that it doesn't really affect for the good those outside of the church in the public square uh, in different spheres of influence. Now, I, I want to be careful. What, what the authors are saying in their research is that this is the perception. It is not always the reality. If you did a, a study of church history, you would see the, rele- the deep relevance of the gospel of Jesus Christ as manifested through his people throughout the centuries. Everything in our society now, from schools, education, hospitals, Uh, work with the poor. You can see throughout the world from its inception thousands of years ago, even today, that Christians, mainly Protestants and Catholics, are on the forefront of many of those things. Now, I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back. We also drop the ball in a lot of different ways, right? So we could do better. We could do more. But correcting the perception, it is far from irrelevant, Throughout history, Christians have been doing incredible things for not just themselves, but for their neighbors. In fact, um, I was recently in the district attorney's office, sitting at a table in her office, surrounded by about 25 faith leaders. And the DA had brought us to the table along with her task force and another group of professionals whose uh, uh, whose professionalism had to do with taking care of at-risk children, specifically those who are trafficked through Santa Barbara County. And this, the purpose of this meeting was to get different groups together around a table to discuss how to address this very dark and evil issue. And so there are professional counselors, there were people who were, uh, had uh, been working with kids for decades, There was a task force uh, from the DA down to the police officers, and there were uh, a group of Christian leaders from all over Santa Barbara. And the DA said at one point, we need the faith community to step into this space. And she also acknowledged, and you you guys have been doing this for a long time already. We're basically acknowledging that you've been doing that and that we need you to, to sit at the table again. Things in the city, right? Which we're not blasting about on Twitter or Facebook, but that are happening where Christians who know their God, 
who love God with all of their heart have no, uh, have no option but to spill that love out. And so it might be that they see their neighbor and they uh, help their neighbor out, or they might see injustice in their neighborhoods, and they're compelled by the love of God to do something that's happening all over the world, all over our city. And yet, not to pat ourselves on the back, we could always do more. Perhaps we here can do more. But to correct the perception, this is the perception, not always the reality. Somehow, people on the outside are looking in, and maybe it's because the, their version of Christianity is one that they've derived from television or politics and television or the number of different things that people see and they label Christianity through it. But our, our, our job here is to correct the perception and show people why God is so good and what he does when he gets a hold of people. We want to help people see that and help them to see it not by telling people The church does awesome things. But how? Verse 12, by keeping our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they will see our good deeds. How? Verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's not by arguing or protesting people into submission. It's not by getting into verbal fights with people and trying to convince them that of our case. It's, it's by acting out the principles of God's kingdom in wherever the spheres of influence are around us. We are supposed to have conduct that is so honorable that it changes our enemy's view of us. That is far more than not committing any crimes. <laughs> That looks like deep involvement in our city. This doesn't happen merely by obeying a few of the right uh, laws and not doing wrong things. It happens, verse 15, by doing good with a healthy respect for those outside of the church. Verse 15, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Use your freedom, not for your own self, not for evil, but use it as servants of God. I say this because whenever I speak about serving God or ministry or any of those things, I've noticed that for a lot of people, and I don't know, like perhaps for want of imagination or a stunted view of how God uses Christians, for a lot of people, the way that we think of being used by God is very cliche understandings of church ministry. So when I speak to people about uh, being Christians in their vocation, oftentimes that person uh, won't be able to know, or they don't know how to connect their faith to their job. Perhaps they're a, you know, an electrician. And so to be told, be faithful as a Christian in your job, perhaps they'll think, these are some of the things, well, uh, I need to like, preach at, you know, <laughs> on the job as I'm like putting wires in the wall or have a Bible study on the scene. You know, this is uh, instantly where our, our minds go, perhaps for want of Im- uh, imagination or maybe because of our stunted view of ministry. And those c- are, are options. If God compels you to preach the gospel in a construction zone and he tells you to do that, then do it. 
But I think there's more also. Because none of this is about things that we say. All has to do with the lives that we live. We are to proclaim Christ's excellencies as we saw verses earlier. But this is speaking about something else. We sometimes think of ministry as tasks performed like we would do in a church setting. Preaching or leading home groups or leading worship. But a biblical view of ministry must encapsulate the realms and the spheres where our lives intersect with the average person. Christ is the king, not only over the church, but he is bringing his kingdom to bear in every single corner of the earth. That is what we are a part of. Not merely in church buildings, but in every sphere of influence of which we are a part. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch reformer, was famous for championing this worldview when he said, instead of a monastic flight from the world, the duty is now emphasized of serving God in the world in every position in life. So what does this look like? Well, for most of you, you're not pastors or vocational ministers, right? Thank God. If you were, we'd be in trouble because no one would be out there. He's talking about sciences. He's talking about the arts. Everything from music to design. He's talking about business. He's talking about finance. He's talking about technology. He's talking about education. He's talking about sports. He's talking about politics. He's talking about the service industry. He's talking about social justice. He's talking about all sorts of these different things that we do to be faithful as a Christian in those areas. Abraham Kuyper, again, would say, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence. All of those things over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, that is mine. What does it look like for a Christian whose Christ is saying, that is mine, that kindergarten class is mine? How does that change you as a kindergarten teacher? Especially when maybe you do not have the space or freedom to go into a secular kindergarten class and preach a Bible study. What does it look like? What does doing good look like in all of these sectors? Well, I think there are three things. From the text that Peter says. One, what we've already been talking about. Respect for everyone around you. Respect for your boss. Respect for your coworkers. Respect for your rivals. Respect for your customers. I think I already said that. That we are to go into the workplace with so much love and honor and respect for people. That they're open to whatever we might ever eventually say to them. The second thing is unwavering. Remember, love everybody, love the brotherhood, honor these people, but fear God. Unwavering allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. We are to hold these two, uh, uh, these two poles in both of our hands. One, we are to love the people in the world so much, and yet we are to have unwavering allegiance to our Christ. And not simply by saying over and over every day, I love Jesus, you know, showing up to work, clocking in. I love Jesus, everybody, just in case you didn't know. Don't tell me to sin or anything. Be awkward. I'm a Christian. Number one, they should see it in the way that we treat them. We should treat them in such a different way that, that, that they wonder what's, what's wrong with us. 
And two, by our conduct, by our, our integrity, by our character, there should just be a different quality of life about Christians. And it doesn't matter if you tell people about Jesus if you're the worst employee in the whole building. It doesn't matter if you're talking about how good God is if you are a jerk. The first thing people should see is this is a different kind of person. The third thing coming out of that is that we should be excellent at what we were called to do. Perhaps you are a teacher, or perhaps you bag groceries, or perhaps you uh, work for Caltrans, or perhaps, perhaps you sell insurance, or, pa- or perhaps you're a stay-at-home mom, and you look at this, and you're, you, you, you can't think beyond like if, if someone were to ask you, how, what does it look like to be a Christian in your field? Maybe you have a hard time looking beyond, well, I didn't cuss today and uh, I told somebody about Jesus or I, I opened the Bible to someone. Maybe that's the only way. If you can do that, awesome. You can get through the day without cussing, high five. If you get to open a Bible with a coworker, awesome. But if you can't do those things, what does it look like? I love this, this quote by Dorothy Day. Speaking about a carpenter, a framer, she said, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. That's the only way we can think about, about being faithful in our job. And she goes on to say, what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. We should be so excellent in our jobs. We should be so loving towards the people that we work with that there is a space being made for them to want to know what is so different about us. Teachers, doctors, interior designers, insurance salesmen, Uber drivers, grocery baggers, wedding photographers, artists of all different kinds, tech industry, coders, corporate executives, administrators, receptionists, broom pushers, scientific fields, psychologists, physical therapists, stay-at-home parents, whatever it is, we are first and foremost called to be good at what we are called to do for the glory of God. So don't feel worthless in that chosen space of yours here in this city. You were called, first of all, to love Jesus more than anything, to love people second, and to do a great job. And somehow, when people do that, it actually starts to get people's attention. Might not be tomorrow, might not be a year from now, but eventually people will see the quality of your life. If you're filled by the Spirit, see the quality of your life, and perhaps there will be a space made for you to step in and to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you. How are we sent yet set apart when it comes to Santa Barbara? Well, we work harder than anyone else for the common good of our city. Being excellent in the public square, in the marketplace, in the field of ideas, whatever the task is at hand. We also show respect and honor to people no matter who they are, and we tirelessly love our church family and give unwavering allegiance to Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now as we transition together into worship through the act of singing. 
And I want you right now as we prepare to prepare your own heart in this. To begin to ask yourself, what, what do I spend most of my time doing? I'm not even asking what, what is your job, although maybe those are both the, the same answer because it's just where you spend most of your time. What are the things that you spend the most of your time doing? I want you to ask yourself that. I want you to ask yourself a follow-up question. Why do I do those things? What do I spend most of my time doing and why do I do those things? In other words, what motivates me week in and week out to do those things? And whatever your answer is, I want you today to bring that before God in prayer. To say, Lord, even if it's like, I don't even have a career right now, or maybe, maybe I'm about to end my career and, and retire, wherever it is, Lord, I just want to bring you my place in the city. And I just want to give it back to you. Whatever you've called me to do and whatever you've called me to be, I don't want to do these things merely to earn a paycheck anymore. I don't want to just live from paycheck to paycheck before I die. I don't just want to pay rent. I want what I do to be connected deeply to the kingdom of God. And so could you show me what that looks like? And maybe you're not even there. Maybe God first has to show you what the kingdom of God actually looks like. And so for you, maybe your only posture today is to get on your face before God as we sing and allow the kingdom of God in all of its grace and love and beauty to fall upon you as we begin to sing about how faithful and how good he is. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, the best response of the Christian in moments like these is to toss down to the side whatever we're dealing with and come back, just come back over and over to the throne room of grace. Heavenly Father, have your way with us. So people who are called by your name, return us now to that calling, that calling to your name. Set our hearts back to true north. Recalibrate our ambitions and our desires. And wet our appetites for a greater thing. We love you, Lord.